Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hello, everyone. I am so happy to be here with you today, but I'm also very sad because Channing is not going to be on the podcast today. This weekend, she was out of town taking some much-needed relaxation time at the beach, so I'm very excited for her, but of course I miss her. I've appreciated the time researching and getting to learn a little bit more about this book, and we're covering Deuteronomy for the dates May 16th through the 22nd. Now, the Come Follow Me manual assigns about seven chapters for study, even though the entire book of Deuteronomy is really 34 chapters in total. So here's a little bit of context or summary of what happens in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, well, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land of Canaan, and the book of Deuteronomy is written as a really lengthy farewell address by Moses right before the people enter the promised land. So Moses gives speeches about Israel's past. He reiterates different laws that Moses had communicated to the people at Mount Sinai. Moses reemphasizes that these laws are really essential for the well-being of the people. And the word Deuteronomy means retelling or second telling or repetition of the law. So a lot of what we see in Deuteronomy is a retelling of the things that have already happened to the Israelites. But we also see throughout the whole book is a theme of remembrance that we're going to focus on today as the people move into this new land of theirs. So we could consider chapters 1 through 30, we could read them as like a giant single sermon. There are introductory words, reiterations of laws, details about blessings or curses if you keep or break God's covenants. And Moses, this is also where Moses recounts a history of the Jews' experience over the past 40 years. There's a chapter from Torah Queries written by David Schneer that I'd like to read. Schneer writes, quote, He, Moses, tells the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, the gaining of the commandments, and then the many struggles of their sojourn in the desert. It's not always a glorious history. Despite a few miracles and triumphs, the wanderings in the desert was largely marked by struggle, failure, and disappointment. Still, this is the history of this people. Moses does not simply recount a litany of facts, places, names, and conquests. His history is peppered with admonitions, laments, and lessons for the future. In some ways, this at times depressing narrative is Moses' ethical will to his community. 
As the elder, he has the responsibility to tell the Israelites their own story and to give meaning to the past in order to shape how the Israelites will live in the future. The recitation of past disappointments and failures is meant to instruct the Israelites how to do things better as they prepare to enter the land. End quote. Moving to chapter 31, this is where Moses is kind of trying to put all of the affairs in order. Then chapters 32 and 33 are the final words and blessings. And then chapter 34 is the death of Moses. In this episode, like I said before, we're going to cover or we're going to focus our attention on themes of remembering, remembering marginalized folks, remembering where we came from, remembering what we have learned as we move into this new portion. For the Israelites, that looks like the promised land. For us, that means moving on to different books throughout the year. I'd also like to issue a content warning for kidnapping, sexual assault, and rape. So please be sure to take good care of yourself throughout the episode. We're going to go ahead and jump right into it. This is, uh, this is a story of kidnapping and rape that shows up in chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. And this is one of the many instances of violence against women in Deuteronomy. There are many others. Some include, for example, chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, about stoning your stubborn or rebellious daughter. We also see in chapter 22, where the law says that a woman should not be punished for being raped as long as the rape occurred in a field where no one would have heard her if she screamed, to name a few examples of violence against women in Deuteronomy. And before we even get to the content of this section of the episode, I... I just am thinking about how for the last three years, the scriptures continue to address war, murder, rape, assault, and gendered violence. And as I was preparing for yet another episode about this content, I was thinking, wow, what would it be like if our lessons and our Come Follow Me manuals and discussions, what could these be like if we were to talk about sexual violence each time it showed up in the text and not skip over any of it? Not just talk about what we think we know about sexual violence or talk about what the text condones, but what if we were to have compassionate, educated, and justice and consent-focused conversations about sexual health, reproduction, and also the reality and continuation of sexual assault and rape? But as the manual continues to skip over or we continue to read around gendered violence and assault, remaining silent about these issues is also part of the reason that they continue. If we talked about rape as much as it appears in the Bible, we would be having so many conversations about sexual assault and sexual violence. And I would hope that we would have informed consensual conversations where we could center the needs of survivors and also talk about rape culture Make sure that our that we and our youth understand what's happening, what role we play play in it, and also how to stop it. All right, so let's take a look at what the text says. This is from chapter 21, verses 10 through 14 that say, When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thine house, and bewail her father and her mother a full moon. And after that thou shalt go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. And if it shall be, if thou hast no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go whither she will. 
but thou shalt not sell her at all for money. Thou shalt not make merchandise of her, because thou hast humbled her. End quote. So these verses address detail and really standardize abducting women during war and then forcing them into marriage into marriages and pregnancies, which is another way of saying kidnapping and raping women during war. This is also called genocidal rape, or the taking and raping of women identified as belonging to a foreign enemy. Thinking back to our theme of remembering, I think that this verse calls us to remember these women of past times, and also witness the modern-day people who still experience such atrocities both in and out of war times. Remember, the Israelites were commanded to wage war against and kill many groups of foreign enemies, especially as we discussed in last week's episode in the Book of Numbers. For me, this brings to mind colonization, or the process of taking power and control of land and labor. In an article titled, 10 Reasons Why Colonialism Strengthened Rape Culture in Latinx Communities by Mala Munoz, Munoz writes, quote, Colonizers used rape as a way to take power and control of indigenous people's bodies away from them and dominate native societies, end quote. Professor Rita Laura Segato explains, quote, In the old conventional wars with conquered territories came the insemination of women's bodies. Soldiers raped the women of conquered territories as if women's bodies were extensions of those territories, end quote. I think that with an intersectional lens, we can also recognize the not just the connection between war, colonialism, and rape, but we can also recognize the ways that racism, sexism, militarism, and colonialism all intersect in this story. In one way, we see the justification for war in the Bible, and in many other instances, as the, the, the justification being that there are other foreign enemies that are occupying the land that God has promised to us, or that God has promised to a certain group of people over other over others. And often, this perceived enemy does not look, act, or worship like the attacking group. The, such justifications for attacking or beginning wars or taking over land and people are also bolstered up by racism and dehumanization, such as when European conquistadors often use these tactics against indigenous and African people to justify genocide, land theft, and slavery. We also see sexism show up here, too, as the domination and exploitation of women's bodies. In previous episodes, we've talked about this kind of threefold takeover or domination of, women, of women's bodies being, the, being objectification that I think that we can see with these women in the story as being kind of like the benefits or the spoils of war that the soldiers, that the soldiers are entitled to. So objectification. Then we see fragmentation or the kind of splitting up and fragmenting of people's bodies. I think we see this in these verses as the woman needs to shave her hair, um, cut her nails or take care of her nails, strip off all of her clothes from her culture, and then is required to disconnect from her family and her cultural traditions. And finally, the third phase of this domination over women's bodies looks like consumption which would be the rape and forced assimilation to the Israelite culture. So I hope that we can see that rape, war, and colonization are about power and control. It's a value of power over humanity and valuing power more than human rights and human dignity. Rape, too, in this context is 
employed to cause fear, to humiliate, to torture, to grow the population of the Israelites while extinguishing other groups of people. You might remember from last week's episode, we cited the article titled Terrorizing Indigenous Women in the Contact Zone, Placing Cosby and the Midianites in Colonial Australia by Laura Griffin, and I just want to remind us of some of Griffin's words. They write, quote, Under the logic of empire, the reproductive capacities of the indigenous woman's body, as with the reproductive capacities of the land, must be contained, controlled, and put to use for the colonizing group. In imperial ideology, what is threatening is not the local woman herself. It is her connection to and potential continuation of her indigenous identity, and thus her tradition and culture. The indigenous woman, like the colonized land she represents, is not simply to be avoided. She must be absorbed into the colonizer's identity and mission, end quote. I know that this is heavy, heavy stuff. And we are going to continue to see such atrocities throughout the entire year. But perhaps for this episode, maybe our call to remembrance is twofold for this story. First, how can we read these texts in memory of the abused, violated, and exploited characters, both in the story, but also remembering victims and survivors today? And I think the second call to remembrance is that the violence of colonialism, racism, and sexism are still very well alive today, but they're also experienced through intergenerational and historical trauma. As white women, the question I'm asking myself is how can I remember the roles I have played as violator, abuser, colonizer, and aggressor and move toward reparative action? I'm also asking myself... How can I recognize the complex nature of my ancestral history that is one of both colonized and colonizer? From the article that I cited earlier by Mala Munoz, Munoz writes, quote, Trauma has a way of sticking with people and can be passed down between generations in a cycle of generational violence. Colonization was profoundly traumatic on multiple levels and took place over hundreds of years. Native and African ancestors who survived colonialism most likely experienced sustained sexualized and gender-based violence in our Latin American home countries. The trauma that our ancestors lived through lives on through us, end quote. So I'd like to issue a call to remember the pains we have caused and the pain that lives in our ancestry. We can think of the word remember here as to keep in our memory, to preserve, and to make sure that these atrocities do not become forgotten. But I also think that we can think of the word remember as re-member, or as a weaving, or as a kind of weaving of healing threads through each family line in an attempt to connect and heal each member in our ancestral lines. A reconnection, a reweaving, a renewal or rejuvenation of healing and connection. I think a really great example of remembering ancestral history shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. This verse, these verses read, When in time to come your children ask you, What mean the decrees, laws, and rules that the Lord our God has enjoined upon you? You shall say to your children, We were the slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord freed us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these laws, to revere the Lord our God, for our lasting good and for our survival, as is now the case. 
It will be therefore to our merit before the Lord our God to observe faithfully this whole instruction as he has commanded us. In this story, we see a child coming up to their family or their parents and saying like, I wasn't there during this entire exodus. So what does this mean to you? What does it mean that we have to like keep up our covenants and uphold all these laws, decrees, and rules that God has given to us? I wasn't there. I don't get it. What's going on? And I like this story because it encourages us to ask, connect, and look into our histories to find meaning, both, I think, in our ancestors and to also make meaning in our present day lives. This verse encourages us to ask in sincerity or with sincerity, what does this mean to you? Or what did this experience mean to you? In hopes of trying to learn more about how our communities and our families have been shaped, harmed, and are trying to heal. I also think that this story could be a really great way to build relationships with people whom we might disagree with or who we think are really different from us. Right? What would happen if we were to ask those who are most at risk or most affected by abortion bans and anti-trans legislation, what does this mean to you? And I think that asking with an open mind and a sincere heart might lead us to compassion. It might lead us to understanding. Even if we don't agree, can we learn what matters to others and then show up for them by asking, what does this mean to you? And then listening to their response and trusting them. Okay, I know we're jumping all over Deuteronomy, but we're going to now turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. And we have a verse here that has been that has been and also has the potential to continue to do harm against genderqueer and trans folks. The verse says, quote, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. End quote. So let us first begin. So this verse is saying a woman should not wear man's clothes and a man should not wear woman's clothes. And anyone that does that is an abomination unto God. But let us first begin by noting that clothing has no gender. We as people and humans make gendered meaning and then we put that meaning onto clothes. And we do this with lots of other things like food and drinks and colors and decor Right. For example, man, manly food or masculine food is steak and potatoes, whereas feminine food is like salads and or fruit. Maybe we can also see that like, well, manly drinks are things like whiskey, but feminine drinks are these kind of like fruity blended cocktails or something. And so here, I hope that we can see that we construct gendered meaning and then we place them on two things. I really appreciated this article titled To Wear is Human by Rabbi Elliot Kukla and Reuben Zelman. They offer us a bit more historical context about this verse by writing, quote, In other words, according to the classical scholars of our tradition, wearing clothes of the, quote, wrong gender is forbidden only when it is for the express purpose of causing harm to our relationship with our loved ones or with God. The prohibition that we learn from this verse is very specific. We must not misrepresent our true gender in order to cause harm. Otherwise, wearing clothing of another gender is not prohibited, end quote. For many people, their gender identity is not what society expects or demands it to be based on the sex that they were assigned at birth. 
For example, based on someone's external genitalia and internal reproductive organs, they might be assigned they might be assigned the sex of male or the sex of female at birth. And because we're taught to misunderstand and conflate sex with gender, which is to say we're taught to think that sex and gender are the exact same thing, we expect and demand as a society that one's gender identity align perfectly or perfectly as like the way that society expects it to be. We demand that one's gender identity align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. This means that we expect folks who were assigned male at birth to identify their gender as man and then to express their gender in masculine ways. We expect folks who were assigned female at birth to identify their gender as woman and then express their gender in feminine ways. And what we get is this type of if-then scenario. If you are assigned blank sex at birth, you will identify as X. And if you identify as X, then you will express yourself as Y. And then, of course, you will have, your sexual orientation will always be Z. And what we also get here is a binary that says there are only two categories for everything. Sex is either male or female. Gender identity is either man or woman. Gender expression is either masculine or feminine. But let's be really clear. Binaries are boo. Boo. No, we are not a fan of binaries. They are narrow. They are limiting. They're harmful. And they erase queer, trans, and non-binary folks. So boo to the binary. And I could talk a whole lot more about this and you can read more about the gender binary and gender essentialism in the piece that we have on our website titled Hidden Harms of Heavenly Mother, parts one and two. But for trans people, their gender identity differs from the sex that they were assigned at birth. To this, Kukla and Zelman write, quote, many people feel like their true gender is not, or not only, the gender that was assigned to them at birth. The Torah is asking us not to misrepresent our gender, which we can understand as using external garments to conceal our inner selves. Unfortunately, many transgender and genderqueer people today feel forced to hide in exactly this way. In our society, the penalty for expressing the fullness of a gender-variant identity is often severe and can include verbal, sexual, and physical abuse, employment discrimination, an inability to access education and healthcare, and sometimes it can lead to murder. And gender rigidity does not just impact transgender and gender queer people. It also harms the eight-year-old boy who was suspended from school for wearing his ballet tutu to class in upstate New York. The flight attendant in Atlanta who is currently suing her employer for firing her because of her refusal to wear makeup. And the butch lesbian who was shouted at and harassed in a woman's restroom in a synagogue in Los Angeles. Much of this mistreatment comes from those who insist that wearing the clothes of the, air quotes, other gender is wrong because it says so in the Bible, end quote. Kukla and Zelman then advocate for turning this verse on its head to find positive, affirming, and uplifting meanings by suggesting that this verse says, quote, we have a sacred obligation to present the fullness of our gender as authentically as possible. The Torah wants us to be our true selves, end quote. What I also like in this article is that they look at the verses surrounding this verse, 
this verse about gender and clothing. And they note that the verses before and after say something like, hey, we need to try and minimize harm wherever we see it. The verses before talk about like, if someone's donkey falls down, you have the responsibility to help that person pick their donkey back up. Or if your neighbor loses their ox and sheep and it causes them a lot of pain and sadness, we have a responsibility to help them find their ox and their sheep. If we're out collecting eggs, we must be sure not to hurt the mother bird. In this way, perhaps a verse that is nestled in an entire list about minimizing harm also calls us toward empathy, toward understanding, and toward reducing harm against our trans and genderqueer friends. I'm really, really grateful for the work of Kukla and Zelman, especially around this verse, because I think it shows us a third way of interpretation. Instead of taking the verse at face value, which would reinforce the gender binary and erase trans and gender queer folks, instead of doing that, or instead of doing the other thing, which is to just throw this verse out completely and ignore it or dismiss it, I think Kukla and Zelman show us a third way, a way that says, how can we make this verse work for us rather than work against us? How can we do the hard work of interpreting towards affirmation and positivity? And I think that they show us a way to do that that really showcases the fullness of a loving God who doesn't want us to hide ourselves, a God who wants us to express our gender identity however feels truest and most authentic to ourselves. That's a God that I know. That's the God that I want to become close to. Not some God that says, no, you have to only wear these types of clothes and you can't do X, Y, and Z thing and you have to only ever exist in the gender binary. No. What did I say before? Boo to the binary. Another verse I want to focus on comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 9 through 14. And to summarize, these verses say that God will make the plenteous and abundant in your work, in your body, in your cattle, and in your land, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God and keep their commandments. For this commandment is not hidden from you. It's not in heaven, and you don't need someone else to go to heaven to get this commandment for you. This commandment is not in the sea, and you don't have to ask someone to travel to the depths of the ocean to bring this commandment to you. The scriptures end by saying, quote, But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. End quote. For me, the takeaway of this verse is that the answers, or what we're looking for, is not outside of us. We have all the answers and knowledge that we could ever need inside of us. There's an episode from the Queer Theology podcast where they discuss this verse, and I really appreciate what the hosts say. They say, quote, Yes, and I think that as someone who grew up fundamentalist or evangelical or conservative, I understand that impulse or the impulse to look external for answers, because we were taught that we had to find the right way to do things. And usually it was, we just have to listen to what the pastor tells us to do and then do it, and then God will like us, and then we will be good to go. What I love about this passage is that here we have a commandment that's given to the people. Then they are also told, you don't have to go searching for it. It's in your mouth and your heart waiting for you to do it. I think that this passage is telling us, you know what's right. You can trust your heart. You can trust your gut. You can trust your sense of relationship with God. 
You don't have to go looking for the right answers. You can trust yourself. The challenge then becomes, for those of us who grew up in traditions that we were taught not to trust ourselves, and we were taught that our desires were bad and evil, and that what we want is wrong, the real test isn't to go out and find answers. The real test is to learn how to trust ourselves. Again, to trust our bodies, to trust our guts, and to trust our souls. That, to me, is the larger message of the passage. Frankly, it's harder. It's a lot easier to say, okay, tell me what to do and I'll do it, than it is to say, what is it that I want? Who am I? What are my values? What do I think my relationship with the divine should look like? It's harder work, but I think it's more fulfilling work. End quote. I love that commentary, and I think it's especially offered within the LGBTQ plus community, but what I hear from it is I hear things like, you are the expert and authority of your own life. So for me, what would it look like to trust LGBTQ plus folks to be the experts of their own lives, to trust that they know what is best for them, and perhaps I should keep my well-intended advice or corrections to myself? This passage of scripture applies both to me and to others. This commandment that's in my mouth and in my heart, the call to trust myself and turn inward for answers, I think that's a beautiful takeaway from this entire passage of scripture. And there's still like so much I didn't even get to cover today. I also thought about talking about chapter 15, which was about caring for the poor, and this really cool idea of releasing people of all of their debts and bondage every seven years. I think there's a really great conversation we could have had about economic justice and debt. We also could have looked at chapter 26 that has a really lovely creed that talks about God's goodness as God led the people out of Egypt. It's this kind of reaffirmation that this is our lineage and we are making it to the promised land. And even though I didn't get to cover all of the chapters, I'm very grateful that you have joined me today for this episode. It's a mix of heavy and affirming, I hope. And either way, I hope that this week we can remember the pain and the reality of sexual assault. We can remember our ancestral connections and trauma. And remember that queer folks are the experts in their own lives. And I think finally, I hope that we can also move from remembering to action as we try to heal patterns of abuse and patterns of painful erasure in our own history and action. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll talk soon. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.